We have been in 1 John for the last couple of months, and I just want to kind of recap the situation that John writes to, because I think that's incredibly instructive for the text that we're going to go through this morning. Uh, John writes to a community that has been witness to a significant number of their body leaving. And so imagine if you show up uh, next Sunday morning, and just kind of look around this morning, but imagine if you showed up next Sunday morning and the center section wasn't here, none of these people are here, but you know that they, they've not died, the rapture didn't happen, you didn't miss that, Tim LaHaye still may be right. And so um, as you look at it, you're wondering where they are, but, but you know that they've actually set up a little bit west of town, and, and their message centers on the fact that we're wrong and they're right. This is kind of their message. So everything we believe about Jesus, everything we believe about God is wrong according to the folks in the center section. I'm sorry, y'all gotta find somewhere else to sit next week. But I'm just saying, and so this is the, kind of the message that comes back to them, and so we hear this, we see this. For many of us, man, these are our kids, these are our, our spouses, these are our friends, these are our neighbors, these are our coworkers, but they think that we're wrong about Jesus. And they're sending that message to us over and over and over again, telling us we are deficient in our understanding of who Jesus is, we are, de- are deficient in our understanding of salvation and what it takes to come into salvation with God through Jesus and be held there by the power of his spirit. So John has been seeking to buttress the faith, to strengthen the faith of those brothers and sisters who have resided in this city. And so he's been working delicately to do this over and over and over again. So he gets into verse 13, and effectively he tells us that the thesis of 1 John, the purpose of 1 John was to make their faith strong, to make their faith solid. Because the content of what they receive from this group that's assailing them will not come to an end. It's only going to get worse. So John writes, and he has this really clear statement. Look at this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Man, John writes to them, and he has this arresting statement, this thing that absolutely catches us in the midst of our process and stops us and demands that we pay attention. You see, John finds them in the midst of potential doubt. John finds them in the midst of potentially wondering, am I right? Are they right? Do I belong? Have I sinned too much? Does God really love me? And he steps in the middle of this. He said, I've written all of these things to you so that you might know. Now look at this. John doesn't give them the indication so that they might be reasonably assured. Most of us, unfortunately, We live our lives being reasonably assured of our place in God. We live our lives being reasonably assured. So somebody comes up and they say to you, brother, sister, are you a Christian? You would say, maybe, I think so. You know, I I believe that's true, man. I, I struggle with some things, but I think that's true. John gets into this and he says, man, you can know. You can know that you have eternal life. And this is the kind of posture that we take. Now understand something in this. Maybe you've seen Christians who go around and their chest is puffed out and they are just annoying to be around because they're they're so bombastic in what they know and, and just how perfect they are. Is that the posture John describes? No. Why do they know? Why do they know? You see, because he doesn't center it in their perfection. He doesn't center it and say, this is how you can know because you guys have never messed up. This is how you can know because I've never had to call you out like Paul did, folks, in his letters. This is how you can know. 
because other people are talking about you. No, he says this is how you can know because you have believed in the name of the Son of God. You see, our confidence in Christ leads to assurance in this life. So this is effectively what he says. Because you have believed in Jesus, you know that you have eternal life. The strength of our assurance rests in the confidence of the one we place our confidence in. We believe in Jesus. This is what separates us. This is what separates us from from people who have not received eternal life. It is our belief in Jesus. This is what he writes. He says, don't be reasonably assured, but have this testimony of solid knowledge. Why? Because Jesus is taking care of it. Jesus is taking care of it. So in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our backsliding, we're not drawn to inwardly reflect and say, maybe I'm not a Christian. No, we look back and we say, Jesus is death. is sufficient for me. His life has redeemed me. He has made me whole and he has allowed me to be forgiven because I have put all of my confidence in Jesus. In Jesus, we may know. In Jesus, we may know. So he goes on and then he begins to describe kind of how this confidence is met out in our prayer lives. And he says, and so this is the confidence or this is the overwhelming assurance that we have towards him. Look what he says here in the end of verse 14. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now this is what John does. It's really interesting. John both at the same time throws open the gates to ask anything you want and then narrows it at the same time, Right? And so some of us, we get into the midst of this and we say, hold on, he said I could ask anything I want, like anything I want, ever. And I say, absolutely, that's true. And so you get in there like, oh, okay, 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 this is what I want. I want a, 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 I like everything. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like, God, I have no idea. And so I'm just going to ask for everything. And so anything you bring my way is just awesome. Like, that's just so good. And so God said, what do you want? And you're like, I like everything, everything. I want, I want a better life. I want kids who obey. I want a job that pays better. I want a house that fixes itself. I want a bank that calls me and says, forget the mortgage this month. It's covered. It's gratis. I want all of these things. I want everything, and I want it right now. If this is the way you've entered into Christianity, you've been really disappointed for a long time, right? And so if this is the way you've entered into Christianity, thinking that God primarily is this large Santa who you can crawl into his lap and just say anything I want. And so I want health, I want wealth, I want, I want all of these things and I want them right now. If this is the way that you've entered into Christianity, you largely, day to day, week to week, Sunday after Sunday, have been incredibly disappointed and disenfranchised. You feel like somebody has lied to you. And if this is what they've led you to believe, then I can tell you this, they have. They have lied to you. So John gets into the midst of this. So he has this group that really doubts whether or not they believe. And so he tells them, he says, you can know. You can know you have assurance. You can know that Christ died for you. You can know that you are saved and eternal life is waiting, is resting for you. And this type of confidence that's produced in you leads you to come before his throne, the almighty God of everything, the one who's created everything, who sustains your breath, who, who keeps your mother-in-law alive. And you're like, why? But he does it. And so he comes into the midst of this and he's doing all of these things all at the same time. And he says, you can ask anything you want of him. And he is able to accomplish it, but you receive those things that line up with his will. You receive those things that line up with his will. Most of us, if we're honest, we tend to pray for those things that make our lives easier and better. 
We tend to pray for those things that make our lives easier and better. These are not necessarily selfish things to pray for. Please hear me say that. But by and large, we tend to spend our time, our energy, praying for things that make our lives easier and make our lives better. But John offers us this amazing invitation in the midst of our prayer lives that we would come in and what we're asking for would find its mate in what God has for us. Now we've spent a great deal of time over the course of this study in 1 John talking about what it is to be spirit-filled and spirit-directed. But many of us in our times of prayer, we don't stop and say, God, what would you have for me? We stop and say, what would I like? What would I want? We begin to craft down this list of what we like and what we would want. But he catches us in this. And he says, when our prayer is matched with God's will, we get what we're asking for. Now, God's will for your life, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, is your sanctification. Understand this. The overwhelming desire of God's heart is that you be made holy. You be made more and more to look and reflect the love of Jesus each and every day. So I want you to think about where your life is and where the life of Jesus is, where you are in your pursuit of holiness and what he is in this complete embodiment and perfection of holiness. And then begin to think through the things you've prayed for this last week. Man, I can think through my own list. So we drove to Galveston on Thursday. We drove back yesterday. And so I prayed, God, please don't let my kids get sick on the road. God, please don't let my kids get sick on the road. My kids didn't get sick on the road. I said, God, don't let it rain. It rained. So begin to think through and, 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 and wonder and, and ask these questions of ourselves in, in the silent moments of our heart. God, what would you have me to pray for? And what a great request of God. Instead of coming in with this pre-made list and coming in and just saying, man, God, these are all the things, these are the desires of my heart. But to ask this question, God, what would you have my heart to look like? And when my heart begins to look like this, what would you have me to pray for? It's an honor to go before his throne. And it is an amazing thing that God desires to lead us in the fulfillment of his will. So he goes on and he says, that if anyone sees his brother, if anyone sees his brother, in verse 16, committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Now in 15, we've been told that whatever we ask, we already have it. And so look at this application then. So if we pray in line with God's will, according to verse 15, we have it at the moment we ask for it. That the, this is the assurance, this is how great, this is how perfect, this is how the guarantee that the moment we ask it, it happens. The moment we ask it, it's real. Whether or not we see it at that moment is not what he's addressing. So he moves into this opportunity of, of illustration. He's showing us a proper thing to pray for. He's showing us what it might look like to pray for these things. So he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. Now, John's going to describe two categories of sin. You have a sin leading to death, and then you have a sin not leading to death. Christians cannot engage in a sin leading to death. A sin leading to death is being in active opposition, in persistent opposition to God. It is consistently saying, I do not believe I will not believe, I will not submit. This is the sin leading to death. 
Now, all of us, before we came to know Jesus, were engaged in a sin leading to death. But those of us who have surrendered our lives, who have come to know Jesus, we can only ever engage, according to John, in sins not leading to death. So this is what he says. You look out, and you see Peter, you see Zach, you see Amy, you see Lori, and they're engaged in sin. Whatever sin it is, like I'm not supervising these people's lives, I have no idea what sin they're engaged in, I guarantee you they are engaged in sin, we should pray for them, I'm sorry. But when we see them out and we recognize they're engaged in actual sin, not something you don't like, right? But they're actually engaged in real sin. This is what he calls us to do, to pray for them, to pray for them. And we can tell other places in the Bible that we should go to them and say, Zach, you need to quit this, you need to quit sinning, you need to return to Jesus. But what he asks us to do is to engage in prayer, to engage in intercession, this is an amazing opportunity. Now, what does a community look like this that can actually accomplish this feat? It's a close community. So your community doesn't know anything about one another. Then you just show up five minutes after the service begins. You sit where nobody else can see you. You make your exit. You don't talk to anybody on the way out. You don't engage with anybody else all throughout the week. You're not engaged in a small group. You don't have a community that gathers around you. There's likely no one who, if you find yourself in the midst of sin, will be interceding on your behalf because they don't know you. Man, I have a handful of really close friends. I have them globally. I have them in this community. When they see, they observe sin in my life, they recognize that it is fundamentally altering my perception of things, that it is fundamentally altering how I lead my family, how I lead this church. And so when they see those things in me, they can't just look at it and say, oh, it'll get better, like it's some rash that I picked up, right? It's some some skin infection I picked up. They're like, oh, as long as you don't shake his hand, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna get better. This is how we have to be in one another's lives, people. I mean, that when you come to church and you sit beside your brothers and sisters on that pew, you look over and you're like, I know they've got marital issues. They know we've got marital issues. I know that he's about to lose his home. I know that they just lost their job. We're praying for one another at the level of the needs that we see, that we recognize. This is what community is. We've been over and over this. The difficulty is that most of us are terrified to share because we don't want it to end up on Facebook. Don't want it to end up in our sphere of, of friends where suddenly they're not inviting us anymore because we've told them we have marital issues and that's just awkward. Like that ruins dinner parties, right? They know we have money problems so they for sure don't want us around because they don't want their money to become our money. Or they look at us and they say, they don't spend their money real well. Let's not give them money. It's this most vulnerable of communities. In the Garden of Eden, they spoke about it physically, but figuratively, we recognize that to some degree, to be in a community is to be naked and unashamed, right? And I'm not asking anybody to stand up, take your clothes off. Please, actually, don't do that. That would be a sin leading to extra, uh, uh, anyway, whatever. (laughs) Almost said exorcism, (laughs) which I suppose could be the case. But nevertheless, 
we get into the midst of this, and it's just it's kind of showing all of your warts. It's kind of showing and exposing yourself for everything that you aren't, not everything that you are. Such a sweet grace, and it requires trust on both parties. And this is what he invites us to, that if we see our brothers engaged in a sin not leading to death, he says, you shall ask, and God will give him life. And in essence, pointing to the fact that eternal life is still theirs. Some of us have friends and family that are backslidden, and maybe they've been backslidden for a long time. They're engaged in following their own pursuits instead of following God, but we recognize at the heart they have made a genuine profession of faith in Jesus, that their heart beats for him, but the devil is blinding them, that he is leading them to follow their heart instead of God's heart for them. He says, if you ask, God will give him life. He reminds us, he says, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And he gets to the other side and he says, you need to understand something. There is a sin that leads to death. And he offers this, I think, odd pastoral word. He says, I do not say that you should pray for that. This is something I've struggled with all week, reading this, seeking to understand it, praying about it, and saying, God, what do you mean when you led John to write this? I think John Stott offers a timely pastoral word when he says what exactly John is up to in this. Effectively, John looks at it and he says, for many of us, we have, and for this group, they have this group of secessionists, those who have left, departed the church. And so for those of us in this room, we have brothers and sisters, we have family members, we have those we care deeply for who are not believers in faith in Jesus Christ, right? We have this. We know them. We love them. So John looks at it and he says, these people... The lost folks among us, they engage in persistent, active disbelief. They've heard the claims of Jesus, they've heard the claims of God, and they said, this is not for me, I want nothing to do with it, and so they extend their hand and they continue in disbelief. John comes into the midst of this, and what he does is he does not require a mandate for this intercession. It doesn't require a mandate for this intercession. And so we ask the question, why? Doesn't that seem heartless? Doesn't that seem cold? Doesn't that seem awfully indifferent? You see, John recognizes something. John recognizes that the overwhelming desire of our heart to see these people come to know Jesus can become the goal of everything in our lives. Every waking moment, we can spend praying for them to come to know Jesus. Every waking moment, we can be obsessed with them coming to know Jesus. Everything in our lives centers around them knowing Jesus. And what happens is we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put our eyes on them and their future faith. To the point Over the course of their life, they die. They've never come to know Jesus. We are so incredibly destroyed, so incredibly dismayed. Because what we've done is we put our full faith and confidence in them coming to know Jesus, not in Jesus. And in the midst of this, we're destroyed. God, why did you let them die? God, why didn't you work in their heart for belief? But I only said this, but I only said that begin to be disgruntled and upset with God because what we've done is place our faith and confidence in their future belief instead of our faith and confidence in Jesus. 
So would you say, Matt, do you not pray for lost people? Man, I pray for lost people all the time. I pray for my lost family members. I pray for my lost friends. Let me just show you a picture of kind of what that looks like and and where we can place our confidence and what our response should be. John 16, 8 has, has been so helpful to me. I used it last week. I use it again this week. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One of the things I pray for my lost friends and family members is... God, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, they are blind. The God of this age has blinded their minds so they can't see you. But God, I recognize in John 16, 8, that your Holy Spirit can produce conviction in them. So God, this is my prayer for this person, that you would remove these spiritual blinders from their mind and that your spirit would convict their hearts. I pray this over and over and over again. God, would you remove the spiritual blinders? God, would you convict their hearts? At the end of the day, I recognize they, my lost friends and family members, have to place their trust in Jesus. I cannot make them do this. I can't enforce them. I can't pray it enough. I can't think it enough. I can't burn a special type of incense. There's no living essential oil that I can put in any or all orifices that will make this happen. They have to choose Jesus on their own. So I entrust them to God knowing this, that he cares infinitely more for them than I ever could. So we trust in the goodness of God. We trust in the goodness of God. We recognize, and and Paul wrote this after Paul had spent some time praying that God would remove something from him uh, he said, prayed for it three times. God never removed it. At the end of it, Paul came with this, away with this message, away with this understanding that God's grace was sufficient in the midst of Paul's weakness, right? God's grace for you is sufficient in the face of your friend or family member's disbelief. You've got to trust in that. God's grace is sufficient for you in the midst of of persistent disbelief. We have to trust in that, his goodness and in the sustaining power of his grace. And then recognize this, according to God's word in 1 John 2, 2, it says, he is the propitiation, speaking of Jesus, for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. There awaits for your friends and family members forgiveness for sins. The propitiation of sin that Jesus himself took upon his body the penalty and the punishment for their sin, even the sin of their active disbelief. That's the degree which our great God loves them, amen? This is what he calls us to do, and it is a difficult work, but it is a work I am convinced that he will sustain us in the midst of. Let's shift to verse 17. We get into the midst of this and we begin to think, all right, so we got sins that lead to death, sins that don't lead to death. All right, so there are these two categories, but as a Christian, like, it, it pretty much seems like the game is fixed, right? Like, I can do whatever I want because there, there are no sins for me that lead to death. And so finally, I've discovered this is awesome. I can do whatever in the world I want to do. Well, John comes in and he says, come on, stupid. And he says, no, come on, recognize in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, Everything you do 
that is wrongdoing, everything you do that doesn't glorify and honor God is sinful. And so Christians, we recognize that we are capable of engaging in gross immorality. We are incapable of doing things that are awful and disgusting, things that, that good moral laws people would look at us and say, I would never be a Christian. I would never engage in that. I would never cheat on my wife. I would never look at this stuff. I would never do these types of things. All wrongdoing is sin. We are all equally dependent upon God's spirit to be at work in us. You see, the difficulty I've I've found with many Christians is they get in the midst of this wrongdoing and they think, oh my goodness, I'm not a Christian, that's why I'm doing these things. I'm not a Christian and that's why I'm struggling with sin. What, What am I to do? How am I to be saved then? We are reminded that if we go back to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are not to present ourselves as sinless, but we are to present ourselves as those who have sinned to one who is sinless so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be cleansed. This is the process he calls us to. We cannot lose our salvation, but we can render ourselves completely ineffective in our communities and in our neighborhoods. But glory be to God who is able to keep us safe. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And so John begins to kind of move into this split. In verse 19, he tells us that there are those who are from God, and then there are those who are not, and the ones who are not from God, they lie within the power of the evil one. So John splits all of the universe. He splits all of humanity. He says, on this side, you have those who live under the power of the evil one, those who live under the power of Satan. And he says, on this side over here, you have those who are redeemed, those who are forgiven, those who live according to the power of Jesus. And he says that in the midst of this, we have this group of Christians that they do not keep on sinning. They do not keep on sinning. We have been created to glorify and to honor God. And in the midst of being true to what he has created us to be, we cannot keep on sinning. This is why you will never find a Christian long enjoying and living in sin outside of the incredible conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in some sense, when we find Christians around us engaged in sin, in this pursuit of sin, our prayer for them is God, make them be miserable. God, make them be insufferable. God, give them no joy, give them no delight outside of you. And this is what it is to pray for their life. But he says, on the other hand, you've got this group over here, and they are under the power of the evil one. So we see within John's understanding that there are non-Christians and there are Christians, and the Christians are those who do not live their lives for their own passions, who do not live their lives for their own pursuits, but who live their lives to pursue Jesus. Amen? Look at verse 20. John has this wonderful verse. I can tell you this week as I read this, man, I'm just caught up in praise of who he is over and over and over again. John points to a fact. He says, we know that the Son of God has come. We know this. But look what he's done. He says, he has given us understanding You get into Matthew 22, verse 37. It says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is what John is talking about in here. 
So effectively, God comes in, the goodness and the loving kindness of our God comes in, and it finds us being under the power of this world. And so God comes in, and into our minds, he gives us the ability to understand. He awakens our minds, he enlivens our hearts, he causes them to beat for him. He says, this is what he's done. He has come, and he has given us understanding. He has opened our eyes. It is not that over the course of our lives, we said, oh, of course, this must be true. See, I've tested everything else, and, and, and I agree, I submit, that this seems to be more true than something over here. See, the, the beautiful picture of this is that God finds us, according to Ephesians 2, in our death, in our disbelief. He finds us in darkness. He finds us dead and disinterested. And he is awakening our minds to understand him. It's this beautiful picture. And then he says, because our minds have been given understanding. Why? So that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. So in this understanding, in this new state of understanding, he says, in in, in the midst of this, you don't just know more about all these things. You know him who is true. And then to add to this, he says, and you've been grafted into him who is true. And so our lives aren't just ours to live, but we live our lives in the full faith and confidence that we are placed in, married to Jesus, that we have been joined together with him, that we don't live on our own, we're not in our own understanding, but he has enlivened our hearts, he has expanded our minds. We may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. And he says, and it's in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. The Christian's full faith and confidence is only a place in the person of Jesus. It's never their accomplishments, their record of contribution to some church, how many mission trips they've been on, how many old ladies they've helped across the road, how many foul words they've kept in, how many bad thoughts they've managed not to think, how many sites they haven't been to, how long they've been clean, how long they've pursued holiness. Our competence is only ever placed in the person of Jesus and in his glorious grace visited upon us in the same. Amen? I want you to see how John ends this. It seems to be an odd, out-of-place verse. But if we will take this, if we'll apply this to everything we encounter, we will find ourselves only ever pursuing Jesus. All the ways John could have wrapped this up. See you next time I'm in town. Hey, great knowing you. FYI, stick away from the secessionists, you know. Buy Apple, buy it early. It's going to do well. Any, any number of things he could have written here at the end, but he comes into this and he says, little children, so he reminds them who he is to them. Stay away from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now we look at this and most of us in this room would say, I have no idol. And what you mean by that is you don't have some small shrine or statue in your car, in your room, at your office But all of us in here have the tendency to place our heart on idols. This is what John's talking about. If you pursue anything else to the detriment of pursuing Jesus, you're creating an idol. Some of us, we've created idols that are lost family members in our lives. Some of us, our idols are these little children that run around that are destroying our budgets and racking up crazy miles as we drive them to every sporting event within a thousand miles, right? They're little idols and they run really fast and they hide in small places so they're hard to nail down. 
All these things can be our idols. Some of us, man, our idols are our retirement. We spent all this time working in church and we spent all this time raising up all this money so I can go do whatever the heck I want to do and nobody gets to tell me not to. Does that sound like a heart that's fully open to God that, that lives for him? A heart that lives and beats for ourselves? See, the pursuit of a Christian is this recognition that there are so many things that can keep our heart from actively, passionately pursuing God. And to recognize, man, my heart can be wicked. I can pursue good things and make good things ultimate things. And when they become these ultimate things, they are idols that I have set my hope, I have set my trust on them. And my faith begins to rest on these idols and making these things grow and flourish and become beautiful. An idol can never grow and flourish and become beautiful because it is something that distracts you from focus on Jesus. My prayer for us is that whatever God would call us to, that we would never, in our pursuit of following that calling, begin to make that calling the ultimate pursuit of our lives at the expense of what we should be following, Jesus extending the glory of the Father and living lives in submission to the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we come to you recognizing, God, that there are those in this room that they are engaged in sin leading to death. They have never placed their full faith and confidence in you. They have never trusted in you for salvation. So, Father, this morning I pray that they would, by the power of your Spirit, be convicted of sin, that you would remove the blinders from their mind, that whatever idols, whatever things they pursued outside of pursuing Jesus, God, that you would show them the emptiness of that. God, that you would call them to repentance, to turn away from whatever path they were pursuing and to turn to Jesus. That in your love you would win them. That in your grace you would woo them. And Father, too, we pray for those Christians who are here this morning. And they have absolutely made a habit of sinning. They live for whatever appetites are placed before them. God, that they would recognize they are not their own, but they belong wholly to you. That in your grace, you would call them back in line with 1 John 1, 9, that they would confess their sins and they would meet you faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Father, I'm so thankful for your goodness to us, for the sustaining power of your grace, for the direction you give us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, help us to be those who are gracious to those around us who fail. And help us to live a gospel of forgiveness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.